I invite you to turn in God's word to 2 Samuel. We're going to look at a number of passages, both in 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel. So it'll be important that you have a Bible at hand. Now, we've been working through the life of one of the key figures of the whole Bible, the life of King David. And I can say King David, because now at this point he is king over Judah, but not over the northern tribes of Israel. Now, if you're not here last week, you should know where we left off. We left off at a point where the northern kingdom, a kind of counterfeit kingdom, because God had not appointed that ruler, they are just beginning to show signs of crumbling. It is the beginning of the end for them. The illegitimate king Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, makes a tactical blunder. He accuses his most powerful top general of an impropriety. And that general, Abner, responds with a threat. He says, basically, I'm going to turn over the whole kingdom to King David, if you're going to show me that kind of disrespect. And that brings us then to our portion, beginning at verse 12 of chapter 3, where Abner begins to act upon that threat. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Let's ask the Lord to lead and guide us through this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your scripture, for preserving to us the account of your working among your covenant people. We confess that when we come into passages like this, it can be hard to know how are you teaching us? What do you desire us to take away? We pray above all that you would help us to reflect upon and to receive the promises of grace that are in Christ And that you would help us to learn what it looks like to imitate his heart. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's probably hard to overemphasize the great deal that King David was being offered here. If you look closely at it, when Abner comes down, Abner doesn't state any specific terms or conditions for what he's asking of David. When he says, make a covenant with me, he doesn't lay out anything. It's implied in there that he'll get to live. And that might be enough for him to feel grateful, given that he has led a rebellion for all of these years. On the other hand, you might even expect that David would offer something in return, because here his kingdom is about to be something like quadrupled in terms of size and in terms of wealth, power, prestige, Everything is about to go up for David if he just accepts this offer. And yet what is striking in this passage is that 
David actually puts a demand upon Abner. Did you appreciate that? Imagine somebody coming to you and saying to you, I would like to give you a million dollars. And you say, on one condition. (laughs) That is what David is doing here. And that expresses in part the confidence he has. God is going to give him the kingdom. And it also says something about the priorities he has as a king, as one who is being fashioned after God's heart. And we're going to see, as we look at this passage, in important ways, the Holy Spirit anticipates the character of Christ and the terms on which he receives his kingdom. And then in turn, how we are expected to respond to that. How are we expected to live in light of that sort of king? And so these are the things that we consider here this evening. Now, what is the condition? We'll come back to that a little bit later. It might seem strange here in verse 13. One thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring McCall, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Later in the text, we heard this is his wife. And so you have a natural question. How come David's wife is living as though married to another man? How did this come to be? What is the situation? Because understanding this will be pivotal or pivotal for understanding why David makes this demand at this point here. So we're going to look at this passage under three main headings. I'll announce them each as we come to them. Starting with this, we need to clarify the situation. We need to clarify the situation in order to appreciate what's driving David here. Now, go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And what we're doing is going back about a decade. A lot has happened in the intervening years. In 1 Samuel 18, we get some important background here. This is before David knows that Saul doesn't trust him. This is before the enmity, everything we associate with the Saul-David situation. In verse 18 of 1 Samuel 18, David begins to seek the blessing of Saul to marry into the royal family, into the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why is David doing this? Is he a social climber? Does he just think because I slew Goliath, I deserve a princess? I don't think so. Again, this is the man whom God chose on account of the piety that the Holy Spirit was forming in him. David had already by this point been anointed by the prophet Samuel. He knows God has called him to the kingship. And so it may be that he is following what seems the natural course. Marry into the family. Don't do anything evil. Let God work it out. And so he's seeking to enter the family. However, verse 19 tells us he gets snubbed. Rather than marrying Saul's daughter to him, Saul does something else. It says in verse 19, at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. David was expecting to marry in, but this is right at the time. David doesn't know that Saul is beginning not to trust him. Saul is fearful because David's on the rise. But then, imagine how much it must have frustrated Saul. Saul's other daughter, Michal, falls in love with David. And so David is this unstoppable force in the family of Saul. Jonathan, Saul's son, loves him. Michal is in love with him. Look at verse 20. Now Saul's daughter loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Now, is that because Saul had a change of heart, and he goes, David, he's a great man. No, 
Saul is a clever devil. Saul has now seen an opportunity. Maybe there's a way that I can weaponize McCall's love for David and David's desire to marry her and place David in harm's way. At that time in history, it would have been customary that when you were getting married, there would be a kind of bride price, especially in David's situation, not coming from a great family, that you would have to pay some kind of money over to the father of the bride. Instead of asking for that, Saul tells him, I want you to bring evidence to me of you having killed a hundred Philistines. So there's a lot of wins going on here. Defeating his enemies, uh, getting David killed, taking them out of the way. Saul sees here an opportunity to uh, to present David in harm's way. As it says in verse 21, Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Verse 25 makes it explicit. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Elsewhere we read that it was said of David, he killed his tens of thousands. So what's so big about a hundred? Probably in context, he was expected to have killed these men personally. So he's not just acting as general. He has to go into combat and he has to defeat a hundred men in order to have this bride. That completely backfires. It royally backfires upon Saul because then look down at verse 26. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. If you know that God has anointed you to be the king, you, I imagine, feel fairly invincible. Here I am called to this. And he goes out with courage. It says, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, and he might, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife, because he had no other choice. At this point, if Saul doesn't do it, he's going to lose face. He's going to seem like a liar. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. Twice in the text, it emphasizes that Michal loved David. And there's no reason to doubt that. There's no reason to doubt that David loved her in return. Sadly, however, their time together would prove to be very short-lived. Because just within a year, David is going to have to flee for his life. And the account of this flight is in chapter 19. Look at me at 1 Samuel 19. Because this contains the lever. This is the fulcrum. This is on which everything turns for the situation she finds herself in. 1 Samuel 19, verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. This is a true story. This is not a movie. Imagine the feelings going through David. Imagine the feelings going through Michal, this young bride seeing her husband leave, knowing that he is a wanted man, that her father, the most powerful man in the kingdom, is trying to have him killed, and to see David go off in the night before the sun has come up, not knowing if you'll ever see him again. Verse 13, Michal took an image 
statue of some kind and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. It would seem that Saul was not there. And so in between verse 16 and 19, there's an intervening period where she's brought to him. And Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy go so that he has escaped. This is the same man who threw a javelin at his own son for taking sides with David. And so we can only imagine the fear she feels. Probably she's between ages 16 and 18. She knows that she's covered for him. She's protected him. She bought him enough time to get away. And so we empathize with her fear. But on the other hand, Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of man brings a trap. But one who trusts in the Lord will be protected. Here, McCall falls into a trap. She makes a decision, probably spontaneous, Verse 17, and Michal answered Saul, her father, David said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? David did not threaten to murder her. It's understandable the predicament that she's in where she feels it necessary to lie, to prove her loyalty to her father, to her kingdom, to her God, because he's the anointed king. And the understanding that If she doesn't come up with a great excuse right now, maybe she's going to die. But her lie will have consequences. The scripture cannot be broken. As much as we empathize with a person who feels it necessary to lie, on the other hand, thou shalt not lie. We could say, well, what would have happened to her had she told the truth? We don't know what would have happened to her had she told the truth because she didn't. And isn't that exactly what we wrestle through at times when we say, but what will, I know what will happen if I tell the truth and the situation will be way worse. Maybe, and maybe that's the consequences for your action. Maybe the Lord desires that we should suffer for the truth at times. Maybe he would work through that. But here we read, as in Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man brings a trap, but one who trusts in the Lord will be protected. Her lie came with the trap door because in presenting David as having threatened to murder her, she causes his flight to be perceived as breaking his marriage vows. As if he had a willingness to kill his own wife and she unwittingly provides her father with a legitimate pretext, seemingly legitimate to offer her hand in marriage to someone else. She's been abandoned by a murderer. And in that time, as it is in some places even to this day, a daughter, especially the daughter of a king, doesn't get to choose who she marries unless she's exceedingly fortunate. We don't know much about Paltiel. All we can assume is he's fabulously wealthy, powerful, and connected because he's the choice of a king, marrying also into a family. And to her horror, she realizes that every day for the next approximately seven years, She can't tell the truth or else her lie is going to be exposed. 
And you can imagine it probably compounded. Maybe you've experienced that where you want to get out of a lie. But then on top of the original lie, there's the shame of acknowledging you've lived in that lie. And so she passes the next seven years in the home and in the arms of another man who is not her husband. And to all appearances is ignorant. That's another example of the mess caused by sin and lies. You don't know the repercussions. This poor man has no idea. He thinks he's, you know, super blessed. But that will have consequences. And that then, this is the situation, our first main heading. The longest of the headings, because you need to understand that situation standing behind this. This is a situation that David is in when he makes his demand. What is his demand? Look with me again at it. Verse 13. One thing I require of you, he says to Abner, that is you shall not see my face unless you bring the call, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Let it sink into you how important that must have been to David that he's willing to delay his receiving of the kingdom. He's willing to put on hold the lives of tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people in Judah at that time who are all longing for this reunion because he will not have his kingdom without his bride. What is driving David's demand? And this is our second main heading to consider that, to understand, to hopefully comprehend some of the motives that are moving in here, because this gives you something of a window, an imperfect picture of the heart of Christ concerning his kingdom and his bride. What is driving David here? Commentators typically identify three possibilities. The first is that he is driven by a desire for her love to be restored to his wife. And that should be pretty simple on the surface. You may be familiar with the story of Jacob, how he worked for seven years. And there's a kind of parallel with David's seven years. But Jacob waited seven years to marry Rachel. And it says, and they seemed to him but a day. And maybe that is how David felt. We saw some weeks ago, David married these other women, largely his other wives, for the sake of alliances. And perhaps he didn't feel what he ought to have felt, felt concerning his first love. Perhaps he had a desire to deliver her from a man that he knew she did not choose to be with. And so that's one possibility that it's driven by love for his bride. A second possibility is that it's coming out of a desire to restore peace among God's people. To restore peace among God's people. And you have to understand how this works. Remember, Michal is the daughter of Saul. Saul belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. David belongs to the tribe of Judah. Now, in Jewish families, tribal heritage flows through the mother. It is matrilineal. It goes through the line of the mother. David's willingness to take back the daughter of Saul shows a willingness not just to unite the family of Saul himself and David, but a willingness to hand over the kingdom, if God wills, even to a Benjamite, because the son would be a Benjamite. And that must have worked to appease the ruling powers of the opposing side. Surely David was aware of those dynamics. And so there is a political aspect to this as well, and it's noble, this desire to see peace among God's people. 
But then third, a third possibility is a desire to restore righteousness and honor in the kingdom. Desire to restore righteousness and honor in the kingdom. Think about what it would mean. What would it mean after David becomes the king of all the tribes? What would it mean if Michal was allowed to remain with that other man? It would seem to verify that there was truth in her original lie. It would seem to indicate that David really was a covenant breaker, that he forsook his wife, he threatened to murder her. And on top of that, David is familiar with the law of God. He knows that she does not have legitimate grounds to be remarried. In the sight of God, this is an adulterous relationship. The other man was not aware of it. And sadly, we hear of such things even in our own day. Somebody gets married and they find out five years later, they were married the whole time to someone else. David knows that he can't leave it. He knows the truth. Matthew chapter five, verse 32, Jesus expands, by the way, Matthew 5.32 expands on the nature of divorce and the circumstances in which remarriage is allowed. David understood that this would be a blot upon justice and a blot upon his reign if he didn't deal with it. So now, which of these motives is driving David? I will submit to you, I think all three. I don't know the balance. All three, the desire for love, for peace, and for righteousness in his home and in the kingdom. And in that way, this is a window into the heart of God and the things that we desire for our homes, for Christ's kingdom, that we would seek to restore love, even where it's so broken, so seemingly impossible to restore again. That we would seek peace where it seems likewise impossible and righteousness. I would add one further detail here before we move to the third and final point. And that's to appreciate David's clemency. Children, clemency is just a willingness to not go hard on people when they do what may have been wrong. It's not as if historical documents have not come down to us from this time and the culture surrounding David and even in the Old Testament. It would not have been unheard of at all if the king, upon hearing that somebody else had slept with his wife under any condition, would have made a terrible, grisly, horrific example of the people involved, both the man and the woman. David doesn't do anything like that. In fact, he's willing to take, he doesn't punish, to our knowledge, Paul Tiel. He takes back Michal and takes her from being a princess and makes her a queen. In this way, we see a tremendous amount of also mercy. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why God spares David, one of the human factors why God shows mercy. With the measure that you use, it shall be meted back to you, and David himself will fall into sin. Now we've seen some of the things that drive David, we come to our third and final point. We need to compare and contrast that, everything we've seen up to this point, with Christ's conditions for his kingdom. Some of these things I trust will be very familiar to you. It's just connecting the dots. And the first, are you not familiar with the fact that Christ has a bride? Throughout the Bible, this is one of the major themes, like we saw the, the shepherd theme this morning that goes from Genesis to Revelation. Even so, from the time of Adam having a bride, Ephesians tells us Adam had a wife, human beings are male and female, to picture the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. In the last scene of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, we meet the bride dressed in her gowns to be with Christ. Christ is a bride. 
And like Nicole, we have betrayed our bond. Now, in Nicole's case, it's questionable how guilty she was. In our case, it's not questionable. We have alienated ourselves from Christ through sin. That's what we were by nature. By nature, we find ourselves in the arms of a man who is not our rightful husband, the world. We find ourselves in his house under his authority. And it would take a king saying, let them free for us to go. And then like David, Christ refuses to receive his kingdom until he has restored his bride. He will not take her, he will not take the kingdom back unless he has his bride. Matthew chapter four, I invite you to turn with me and look there. Gospel of Matthew. In chapter four, it's the famous passage where Jesus is being tempted by the devil. The devil tempts him in several different ways, but the final temptation in verse eight says the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is somewhat like Abner. It's not that the devil has a right to them. It's that he's willing to fight to the death for them. But here he says, I'll let him go free if you'll worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Why doesn't Christ want the kingdom at that time? It's not as simple as, well, Satan's offering it to me. Jesus knows that if he accepts the kingdom under those conditions, then he doesn't have a cross If he doesn't have a cross to bear, he doesn't have a bride. There has been no redemption. There has been no atonement. Christ could not accept the devil's offer, not simply out of his own faithfulness to God, but out of his faithfulness to his covenant vow, his eternal promise to redeem a people known to him. You, if you trust him, he will not receive the kingdom except upon the condition that he has his bride. Ephesians 5 verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. How beautiful is the understanding that Christ has committed to you. And then to consider his authority. Look finally with me at verse 14 of 2 Samuel 3. Compare his authority to that of David's. David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. As soon as Abner wasn't backing up this false king, he is very compliant. And the devil has no hold upon us anymore. And so the world does not have a hold upon those whom God calls. Christ says, Give her to me, and we are his. And he can say, I paid a price far greater. I paid my own blood. This is what we celebrate tonight. 
That he was willing to die for your everlasting salvation. Not die simply so that you could live a decent life for 80 years. Everlasting queen of cosmos. That's our calling because he is faithful. So by way of conclusion, let's reflect just a little bit again. What have we seen here? We've seen in Michal a warning. God warns us to consider carefully the consequences of a lie. Not to operate out of the fear of man. To trust him to protect us. And Paul Tiel, we haven't talked about him much, but I think that we should not be surprised if the world follows after you weeping. The world wants you to remain with the world. The world feels connected to you. Like the world really is your proper spouse. And you shouldn't be surprised then when people in your own family, even in your spouse... Your children want you to remain with the world. We don't hear anything of McCall looking back, and nor should we. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 says, For I feel a divine jealousy on behalf of you, Paul writing to the Corinthian church. I feel a divine jealousy. I feel Christ's own righteous longing for the exclusive affection of his wife. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And then to see that if God can use Abner to drive back Paltiel, he can certainly use all kinds of afflictions in this world. He's the devil himself to loosen the grip of the world upon you. Finally, in David, we see an expression, an imperfect one of the heart of God, seeking love, peace, and righteousness. And these are really pointing us to Christ. That's what we see even here. The love, the desire for reconciliation among his people who are one people. The desire to clothe us in righteousness and nourish us for righteousness. With that in mind, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to receive from you good things. To be goaded on in the Christian life. We pray that you would please apply this word to our hearts throughout the week. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.